My agent called, he said he got some interest in my script I'm glad I didn't tell him that I never finished it I got my cast of characters and outline for the plot I even got a famous classic case of writer's block Get it out of my head 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 Get it out of your head And onto the page Get it out of your head And onto the page Get it out of your head And onto the page Get it out of your head And onto the page Welcome to On the Page. This is the podcast that answers all of your questions about the craft and business of screenwriting. My name is Pilar Alessandra, and I'm the instructor and script consultant here at On the Page. Joining me as podcast producer is Dapper David Bax. How are you, David? I'm I'm much better. Are you than better? I was are at you, the end of the last episode, have I you went, collected yourself? I dried my eyes. Yeah, pull, I pulled myself together. <laughs> we were talking about favorite TV moments, and and David got a little choked up on talking about some of them. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> You're going to be a puddle at your wedding. Can I just say that? You're going to be a mess. <laughs> I think I, uh, I I might be too, like, uh, just too inside my own head to even be aware. I don't know. That's what I'm, that's what I'm hoping. Pat started crying in the middle of yeah. the wedding, but we don't really know why. I don't know if he was, you know, could be happy, could be misery. <laughs> we, he was just a foreshadowing of things right. to come. Uh, we have a wonderful guest with us today. We have Jenny Evanson. Hello, Jenny. Hi. Thank you for being here. Oh, my pleasure. And we're talking about on a, a busy Sunday for you, too. You've got two small kids at home. And you said, how old are they? Um, five and 15 months. Five and 15 months. Oh, <laughs> gosh. It's a pile of excitement at home. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, this might, we'll, we'll try and send you back to them as soon as possible. Or if you want to stay away for a while, you can hang out. It's up to you. Um, Jenny is the author of, ready, ready for this? Wait for it. Shakespeare for Screenwriters. Yes, we're finally talking about this. Shakespeare for Screenwriters, colon, timeless writing tips from the master of drama. Yes? Yes. Yes. And uh, with all due respect to G. Robin Smith. G. Robin, I know that you're listening right now. And uh, Robin is a longtime listener. He was also a guest on the show. He has been, uh, has his own books that deal with this subject and friends books that deal with the subject. And he's been keeping me up to date for a long time. But he's not in LA, and you are. I'm sorry. When you come out again, we'll have you on the show again, G. Robin. I promise. Um, but in the meantime, we have the lovely Jenny Evanson, and um, a little bit about her. Um, she uh, at UCLA was awarded the Harmony Gold Screenwriting Prize and the Women in Film Eleanor Perry Writing Award. She's also won top honors at the UCLA Showcase, Showcase Screenwriting Contest. As a writer in L.A., she's worked with a variety of studios and production houses, from DreamWorks to Focus Features. She's an award-winning teacher of Shakespeare, composition, and film, and she currently teaches at Pepperdine University in Malibu. Yes. Yeah, you're busy. It's a a beautiful place to teach. Uh, Is it? It is. I've seen many crazy things. They're like condors. um, Really? I got an email saying, be careful about the mountain lions. They've been circling the parking lots. Wow. Right. It's a wonderful, wild place. (laughs) (laughs) And then, of course, you've also got the students and the professors to worry about. Oh, yes. They're they're wonderful. (laughs) None of them are dangerous. (laughs) So how long has your book been out? It has been out, actually, uh, I... 
I delivered the book, uh, and then I delivered my son uh-huh. in the same month. So it's been 15 months. Oh, my gosh. Since I delivered it. But it's actually, the book has not been out for longer than, it's been out for about a year. And it's also through Michael Weezy uh, Publishing. It sure is. And it's also available on Amazon and yes. all the bookstores Kindle, that everything. haven't closed down yet. Um, <laughs> and uh, why did you write the book? I'm just curious. So um, some about my background. I actually have a PhD in Renaissance Literature. And I studied Shakespeare. And of course, I love Shakespeare. I think he's just a magnificent writer. Um, and I was, a, you know, and I'm a writer as well. And I thought to myself, you know, I wonder, I wonder what it is that we can learn from Shakespeare um, as writers. So I thought, well, let me just reverse engineer some of his plays to see what he did to make them so memorable, to make them so timeless, to make them so important for, a, for us that we... we produce these plays every year. You know, we go back to Hamlet over and over again to see what what we can find. And I thought, let's just take him apart and think, what is it that makes a timeless classic? What is it that makes an an incredible character like Hamlet? I thought, maybe we could do this. And my my background, my particular education background with my MFA from UCLA and my PhD gave me some insight on how to put those two together. And I noticed in your your table of contents here that you actually... Every chapter is dealing with a new, uh, with with a different play. Um, so we've got everything from Henry V to Romeo and Juliet, uh, Merchant of Venice. We've got Macbeth, of course, King Lear, and um, all of the chapters also have a, a, a subheading to to them. And you'd mentioned some of your favorite chapters, and I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about what you explore in them. You had started with talking about Macbeth, um, and uh, and the subheading there was why we love obsessed characters, Macbeth. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the great things about Macbeth is that we really remember this play for this incredible character of Macbeth, right? He's this, um, he's incredibly possessed by this ambition to make it to the top. And we, you know, he's this sort of this incredible character and we love to watch him, right? We love to watch him and we love to watch him get what he wants and then spiral into absolute insanity. What's interesting about the play is that in fact, it's not Macbeth's ambition that really drives the play. It's really Lady Macbeth's driving ambition. She's the one who has these incredible speeches that say that ask, you know, to be unsexed, turn herself into a man or whatever it is. And she calls on these murdering ministers, these unbelievable ghouls. And she says, if I, you know, she would kill a baby if she, you know, she would rip it from her breast and dash its head against the wall. It's her incredible ambition that really drives him. At one point, he says, I'm not going to kill the king. I'm not going to do this. And she says, you know what? You're not a man. She basically calls him a coward. And he has to do it, right? So it's really her pushing him. And it's watching these characters push each other toward killing a friend of theirs who's on the throne so that they can sit on the throne. It's it's watching these people be just stung by the scorpions in their mind, right? So this is a fascinating play to watch. And I was thinking, how can we create characters like that? So part of what I did was I, I thought, well, what are some of the other characters that we know of in film that are... Um, that do this, and how can we make films like this? So I thought, well, one comparison would be Scarface, right? Because he's an incredible, an incredible character. He is a low-level 
right? Mafia guy. And he wants to get to the top. And he does. He moves all the way to the top. And we love watching him. We love watching him burn with his ambition to get to the top. And then once he gets there and he gets the girlfriend, he gets Elvira, he gets everything, right? And then we watch him kind of just, as soon as he gets it, that's the low point. That's the weird part about that film is that's when he's sitting there and he said he's in the club. He's got his girlfriend. He's got everything. He's got a pile of coke, you know, and he just says, is this it? Is this all there is? That's the low point. That really is the low point for Macbeth as well, right? And we enjoy watching him spiral into this incredible insanity that ends with that shootout, right? And it's just a fascinating character. So what we want to do is our work, right, is to figure out how to build those characters, right? So we, we want to offer them the best introduction that you possibly can. Lady Macbeth's introduction just crackles with energy. That's the moment when she calls on the night ministers to, you know, these ghosts to come help her, right? And the first time we see Tony Montana, it's this incredible moment. What do you want? I want the world and everything in it, right? He knows what he wants. He's going to go get it. So we love to watch these characters move through their cycles and then pull back into this incredible spiral of insanity. Um, for people who are TV fans, House of Cards. Right. <laughs> House of Cards. It is a Macbeth story, and it's not very shy about about its. Uh, Absolutely not. It, yeah. <laughs> I, I think Macbeth also has a line in it that is a great example of just a really wonderful understatement. And I think it's after he does his first big batch of killings, and somebody basically goes, "How you doing?" And he goes was a rough night that's all that he says (laughs) you know that's it and and it's such a such a a a clean statement to button up something that was so very messy right um so you know we think about shakespeare and his flowery dialogue but really he he could he's the the king of subtlety and subtext in certain places in his text. Do you go into that at all? Or or how do you you feel about that? One of the other things that I talk about um, is Richard III. Mm -hmm. Um, There's there's this great moment, right, where you watch this character, who is, again, another character, you know, bent on becoming king. And one of the greatest parts about it is that the action lines in Shakespeare are notoriously sparse, right? So there's no character sitting around. I think... Everyone in every single one of our scripts has had characters shuffling papers or drinking something or doing something, grabbing coats, doing this and that and the other thing, just things to keep the the actors busy. But they don't really move the plot forward. Shakespeare makes you remember, don't put action lines in there, right, unless it's absolutely integral to the plot. And integral to the plot. So you have these moments there in Richard III where he says, you know, I want somebody to die. And in the next scene, they're bringing in the guy's head on the platter. That's the action lines. Those are the only action lines there. It's, he's famously sparse with his action lines. He gives you only what you need. So we do think of him as having flowery dialogue. But if you actually look at the writing, it's incredibly clean. And also, you know, the, the iambic pentameter was was a, a pattern of speaking that was supposed to mimic real speech as much as possible so it wasn't he wasn't following that to be overly flowery he was following that to be as authentic as possible yeah i mean i think you know 
Uh, I, I often have students who say to me, well, you know, Shakespeare's in Old English. And I think, oh, no, no, no. I, I've done Old English. Mm-hmm. That, that's Beowulf. It's weirdest, weirdest. You know, there's these incredible, you really can't understand Old English. And then there's Middle English, there's Chaucer, you know, that's Middle English. But Shakespeare is really in modern English. And it is, when you spend enough time with it, you know, you get to the part where you, you, you're just inside of it. I had a really great teacher who said, you know, the problem with Shakespeare is that uh, you always have to look up words, which is basically like answering the door on your wedding night. You know? <laughs> you know? So, and, you know, the, there are some issues with, you know, understanding everything that has, that's going on in Shakespeare, but the language, once you get into it, if you spend enough time with it, it just really starts to roll. And, and, and David, you were talking about your love of Deadwood in the last oh, episode, episode yeah. and he wrote in, they, they wrote the majority of that dialogue in, in, well, not the majority, but some characters only spoke in iambic pentameter. Um, and then they would have these sort of, you know, soliloquies yeah. um, where they would just stop and they would just talk. And it was very, you know, stolen from great Shakespeare. Well, you know, I mean, Shakespeare was actually a pyrotechnic when it came to language. Um, in the first time that Romeo and Juliet meet, their incredible first exchange, which doesn't seem like it's um, poetry in any way, if you actually look at it, it's a buried sonnet inside the, the text so that you don't even see some of the poetry that he's writing there. Um, it's an incredible... He's just an incredible um, engineer for language. So that you don't even notice sometimes that you're reading poetry. You just think, oh, you're so into, the, into what's happening and it's so beautiful. And then by the end, you step back and say, hey, look at that. That's a sonnet. That's amazing. I, what, I think one of the things that first turned me on to scripts, and I apologize to listeners if they've heard this story before. I don't remember if I've ever said it, but I was studying at the Royal National Theater, right? <laughs> Which, you know, it was, I felt really bad. Um, uh, I, I get there, and um, uh, the great actor who'd started the National Theater dropped dead the, the minute I got there. Um, yeah, I, I, I felt nice. really bad about it. It was, it was like a thing on the first day, just dead. I have a habit of breaking things with my mind, but I think in this case I, I did that. But, but anyway, so, um, so I, I get there to study, and I, you know, I think I'm an actress, and I, I find out, nah, not really a good actress. But one thing that was drummed into our head was in the study of Shakespearean text, was to look at the white spaces that mm. that you know if something's going but um but um but um but um but um right mm. and it goes but um but um but um now the rest of the but umps are white space and that means take a pause right. that actually in the way that the words are 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 work down the page that it actually sort of gives you a rhythm to go with. And if there are no words, that means there's a thought there, there's a beat there. Take that beat. If there are no beats, don't take the beat, which right. I think when people sort of are, are you know, they, they take Shakespearean dialogue and they try and, and, you know, be all Stanley Kowalski about it, that's right. where we have a, a problem. Sorry, that was a little... No, 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 the... I mean, I, you know, I'd, I'd say that the turning point, the entire turning point of Othello, when he finally decides that he thinks Desdemona really did it, he has this moment where he's, you know... Uh, I see this half, you know, Iago says, I see this half a little dashed your spirits. And Othello responds, not a jot, not a jot. It's that moment. It's that, it's a stutter. And it's, it's not an iambic pentameter, but it's a, it's this moment where you see that there's a little stutter in his mind where he realizes he could 
B, dealing with a wife who's unfaithful. That's, that's what's going on in his mind, right? So that, that moment when his mind starts to take a little stutter and stumbles and falls in his valuing of his wife is a little stutter in the language, not a jot, not a jot. It's a very interesting moment, right? And the entire, the entire play goes downward and goes into a downward spiral from there. So there aren't any parentheticals. It's just the placement of the words on the page. And with, with screenwriting, so much of it is the placement of the words on the page. If there's a white space there, take a beat. If Absolutely. there's no white space there, don't. Keep going with the dialogue. I would agree. And I, I would also say that there are many, many places on TV right now. I mean, at least for me, True Detective was, I, I just loved True Detective. And I just thought there's so much poetry in what Rust had to say, right? Everything was, I do think that we can put poetry into screenplays. And, you know, maybe I'm a little off my mark here, but I do think that what's interesting about something like Star Wars is that people remember all the dialogue. I'm not going to admit to this. But I may or may not know the entire script by heart of Star Wars. Oh, I think I think suddenly everybody out there just fell in love with you. <laughs> no, well, this okay, is, this is the day for it. Right? Yes, it's, right. it's May the Fourth. What? What? This is today is Star Wars Day. It's yeah. Star Wars Day. It could be because it's May the Fourth, as in. Right. May the fourth be with you. Right. Oh, Jesus Christ. Okay, we're moving on. <laughs> Tell me about some of your other favorite favorite chapters. I kind of got off. With you know, off subject with my my love of dialogue here, but tell me some of the other favorite chapters. You know, one of my other favorite chapters is Hamlet. I mean, I, you know, who doesn't love Hamlet? I find him a really complex and wonderful character, and I thought, you know, there's got to be some way for us to figure out what's going on. I mean, what's interesting about Hamlet is that we return to him years and you know, year after year, trying to figure out what's going on. I cannot tell you how many trees have died arguing over what's going on inside his mind. And you, you have, as your, as your subtitle here, creating psychological depth in your characters. So he really, the fact that he triggers all this debate, is the, the, the writer's doing something correctly, right? We, we, we should be arguing about characters and what they're really thinking. That, that's fun. I absolutely agree. I mean, I think that we spend a lot of time thinking about um, Hamlet, but I think that there's a way to build that into your character. And part of it is, um, there are a couple different things. First of all, I think, um, Hamlet is fully boxed in and he's not given any easy choices, right? He's, you know, he's got this ghost who comes down and says, you got to kill the king because I said so. I'm your dad. You got to do this. Now, Hamlet's choice is not a great one, right? The king is his uncle and it's married to his mother. And if he kills the wrong guy, what if this ghost is lying? What if the ghost is a, a demon from hell? He's, he's really, what if he makes a mistake? Really, the ans- you know, the, the penalties for killing somebody are that he's going to be, you know, suffering from internal damnation. So it matters, right? It matters whether or not he's right about this. Right. So he's got to make the right decision. He's not, and yet it's his dad who says, I was murdered. I've got, you've got to avenge me. So he's not, he's fully boxed into this terrible, terrible decision, right? So giving your characters a really, truly difficult choice is one of the, one of those great ways to create psychological depth. Um, and we look at, you know, a character like um, Jimmy Dean, right, who has this terrible choice of how do you, what do you have to, what do you do when you need to become a man, you know? He's got to play this chicken game, right? And then his friend dies and he just, he's just, he has that moment where he erupts in, in emotion just like Hamlet. Well, you're tearing me apart, right? Mm-hmm. You know, what can I do? This is, this is tearing me apart, um, so that creates a kind of incredible psychological depth, and we run to that Jimmy Dean character as much as we do 
to Hamlet, right? We think about him over and over again. It's an old classic, and I know, you know, not, you know. Um, but that tortured soul, that tortured exactly. leading man is, who's, who's making the painful choice is, gosh, he, he runs so many movies. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's just one of those things. Like, it's one of the ways that we can create a character that just rivets the audience is when somebody is torn apart by an incredibly difficult decision and you don't know what you would do i wonder if drive you know um with ryan it's ryan gosling right, mm-hmm. right, right, right. like I, I wonder if it, he's sort of a hamlet character you know any anybody who's sort of young and and thinking about having to make a major move in order to expose somebody else at the risk of his like you said his own damnation is is hamlet right um what about, um, well, actually, why don't you just keep telling me your favorite? No, 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 you start. <laughs> no, you start? <laughs> yeah? What I, I like here, uh, The Taming of the Shrew, and uh, your subtitle is, Or Nobody Wants to Watch a Happy Couple. So Taming of the Shrew, does this go with romantic comedies? It does. You know, what's interesting about it is I think Taming of the Shrew is really a template for modern romantic comedies. Um, it's... Um, it's about a guy who's, you know, Petruchio, who's just a, he's just a real turd. You know, he just really isn't a nice guy. Um, and, and, it, and this woman, Kate, who's just really not nice either, right? She's just a terrible um, shrew, uh, as, it, as it happens. Um, and, but what's interesting about it is that what we love about that is that we have these two people who are put together, and they are so clearly well-matched in their mental and their linguistic abilities, and then you just watch these fireworks happen as they come together, right? And they just battle it out, and it becomes this kind of incredible friction, right? So what's interesting about that is that the language, they battle back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, and it builds up into this incredible almost sexual friction and then she strikes him right and it becomes physical sort of like there's this release moment it's when you actually look at some of what's going on in that that movie it's incredibly exciting to watch these two people come together but that is so much of what's going on in romantic comedies if you think about something like I'm, I hate to harp on the Star Wars thing, but you look at The Empire Strikes Back, which is not technically a romantic comedy, but if you look at that romance between Princess you know, Leia and, and Han Solo, and, mm-hmm. it's incredible, right? That moment where they're in the tunnel and you know, I just assumed she's a Wookiee. I can arrange that. You know, this, uh-huh. there's that moment, right? We were watching them duke it out, but we know they're right for each other, and that's what makes their romance sizzle, right? That friction. That friction is what makes it sizzle. So Taming of the Shrew offers us um, a template for how to create friction that really excites the audience. So I was in Taming of the Shrew at the Boston Shakespeare uh, in the public theater, right? Mm -hmm. And I was playing Bianca, and I fell in love with Petruchio. (laughs) And guess what? That's why I'm in L.A. Uh. Yeah, I know. I know, because he said, hey, I want to go to L.A. So I went, okay. (laughs) And so I ended up in L.A. Guess who forgot to show up? (laughs) Petruchio. That's right. So don't fall for your Petruchio, ladies. That's what I have to say. Uh, Although L.A. is nice. I'm here because of the Muppet movie, so. Are you? What, what, what got you here? How did the, really, it was the Muppet movie. It was because when the Muppets came to L.A., you were like, this is pretty? No, no. I just, you know, I saw the, the original Muppet movie, and I, you know, I wanted to. Find the rainbow connection. And that's why I'm here. Aw, see, that's nice. <laughs> There's hope for you. No hope with Petruchio. None. Do you hear me? You know who you are. Okay. So uh, what about, let's see. Oh, this is fun. I really love this. Um, uh, Richard the Third. 
Can oh. we go there? Oh yes. The 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 uh, the I'm sorry. The subtitle of this is "Or Show Me, Don't Tell Me." Yeah. What's great about that is it. You know what's true is that um, anyone who's a writer has heard that like six million times, right? right. And it's a lot easier said than done. Um, that's just the truth. I mean, just the show me, don't tell me is um, one of the easiest things to hear and one of the hardest things to actually do. You sit down, and you think, particularly with a screenplay, right? When you're writing a novel, you can just sort of go off and say, well, I, I was feeling this and then I took a sip of my coffee and I thought that. And with a screenplay, you have to show absolutely everything, right? And it's very difficult to do. Um, and so Richard III offers us a villain, right, who is this incredible villain who is 100% action. And that is what's so great about him. Um, And so I wanted to take him apart and see how he does this thing. So there's this great scene where he is, he's just killed, you know, this woman's husband. And and he woos her, right? You can't imagine how he does this. He's this hunchbacked, ugly guy, right, who's done these terrible things. And he somehow, by the end of the scene, manages to get her to say she will marry him. So taking apart that scene and just seeing what his what he says to her, how he does it, how he's persuasive, that's the master that's the mastermind of a villain, right? Nice. How how do you do that? So you know you could see that as um in comparison to say somebody I think is one of the greatest villains committed to film, which is Hannibal Lecter, right? And the incredible persuasion that he offers to Clarice, right? How does he get her into his little net, right? He doesn't marry her at the end, obviously. Um, I mean, I don't think so. Or does he? <laughs> right. right. I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but uh, he doesn't marry her. Um, but the point is, is that the, there's this um, this incredible relationship that 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 comes through. We see that he is an incredible mastermind who's able to persuade anyone of anything. So we have this one of the great things about that particular character, Richard III. I also talk about him in um, a chapter that sort of just takes apart villains, like how do you make a great villain and why are villains important? Um, And I make the argument that really your villain needs to be smarter and sexier and more interesting than your hero. Otherwise, it's not a good game, right? Otherwise, your movie goes soft. It's just not that interesting. And so you have somebody like Richard III, and you have a real you have a real story there because he's just incredible. He can, within the space of 100 lines, persuade a, persuade a woman whose husband he has just killed to marry him, right? It's, it's an amazing piece of work. And I think, you know, Hannibal Lecter is, is another one of those characters who's just able to take us to these incredibly dark places with persuasion. Very nice. This is really fun. I am. I, I'm sorry. Um, uh, let's see. Let's go. Any, any, uh, any favorites that you have by any chance? Are you a, a Shakespeare lover at all? Anything that comes to mind, um, David? Uh, uh, well, do you mean my favorite Shakespeare plays? Or yeah. Movies based on favorite. my favorite movie that is inspired by a Shakespeare thing is the movie Scotland PA, which is a retelling oh, yeah. of Macbeth. That's really in good. Fast food in 1970s Pennsylvania. That's it, an amazing movie. It really is good. It really is good. I like when people like actually just go for it, <laughs> you know, and it takes you a while to go. Oh, wait a minute. Okay. Yeah. Um, um, but, but you know what? Uh, 
uh, again, this is because of the movie, but I love uh, Titus Andronicus because of Julia Taymor's completely insane movie from 1999. I don't know if you I love that movie. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. I mean, there's. I actually don't talk about Titus in the book, but I actually love that play. It's one of my very favorite. I mean, there's very few that I don't like. I mean, I, probably Timon of Athens is not my favorite. <laughs> um, I did. I read them all like a million times, but um, Timon of Athens didn't make it up there. But Titus is just great because there's all these incredible body parts floating around. Um, by the end, you actually rack up how many body parts are there and uh, how many children have been eaten. <laughs> I, what I, what's really great is that you'll see, for me, I mean, you know, when you spend so much time with Shakespeare, you get these great little quotes that are thrown out there. And um, sometimes I think, yeah, but didn't that come from Titus? And then I think, wait, that's, she's saying that, uh, you know, mercy is this great tell for a great man and I thought this is when she's she's talking to Titus telling him not to kill her children <laughs> and I thought I don't think you want to quote that <laughs> as something that you would say to someone I'm just going to point I'm just going to put that out there just, just, just be careful you right. know? don't show your, your cards um, uh, let's let's end with uh, King Lear um, your subtitle here is want to create a classic drama destroy a family yeah. uh, I, I think August Osage County that just right. came out is a classic Lear story it absolutely with is with Meryl Streep as Lear absolutely and how she's sort of you know pecking off her her daughters and working them against each other and playing favorites and I, I hadn't realized like Leah really is the, the the center for so many family dramas what are other ones do you compare them to well you know I mean I think what's interesting about Lear is that it's structured so weird so Lear starts at the top right most you know screenplay structures are sort of you know you, you have a linear little bell curve and a, you know there's a climax and all these other things but Lear is just it starts at the top he's got his family around him he's dividing up his stuff and then he he realizes that his daughter isn't going to say everything that, you know, that his favorite daughter isn't going to say what he wants him to say. And she says, well, you know, I'm just going to tell you what I really feel, which is that I love you as much as my bond indicates, which is that you are my father, no more nor less. And her sisters, of course, falling all over themselves to lie it up, you know, as much as they can to, to get as much land as they can. But she's just not like that, right? She just tells him exactly what she feels, which is I love you like anyone should love a father. Um... And it just, it starts there, and then it just, it's like, it's built like an avalanche. It just cascades off into this spiral of incredible sadness, right? It ends with him naked, alone, on a, you know, on a storm by himself, you know, with his dead daughter. It's just this He deserves it, though. He's such a bastard. See, you know, you start out that way, you think that, right? You, you know, there's, a, there's that moment there where you think, you know, he really doesn't know his children, so he kind of deserves this. But then when his children start, you know, those, you know, Regan and Goneril do so many terrible things. You think, you know, no, no parent deserves this. You know, so there's that turning point in the play where you think, okay, yeah, so he doesn't know his own children, but does he really deserve this? You know, is this really what he gets for it? Um, but I think what's interesting about um, King Lear is that it, it offers us really a, sen- a, a view into what it is that makes families, which is so much a part of every single one of us. Every single one of us has a family. It's an integral part of being human, right? We all know that. We all know that families can be both wonderful and terribly vicious, right? Uh, maybe, maybe not you two, but... Um, <laughs> right. I, 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 no, nobody's going to say nothing. anything, right? Right, you say nothing. We say nothing. But we, I think that many people do understand that there can be... A family can be a cover for both tremendous love and tremendous 
uh, violence toward one, one another, right? It can be those places, and I think that's why we, we keep trying to pick it apart as storytellers. We're, we're looking for what it is that we need there, right, to understand what is happening in those, those little family units. And I think Lear offers us a sense of what it is and how it's structured. You know, he takes it apart by saying he starts at the root. You know, he starts at the root by telling you exactly what it is. And all those really great family dramas start at the root and tell you what's wrong with this family, right? As um, Tolstoy said, every happy family is the same, but every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. And Lear tells you what makes this particular family unhappy. And I think some of the greatest family dramas that were ever written start at the root and just tell you exactly what it is that makes this family unhappy. Something like, um, you know, Ordinary People. That's a wonderful movie, I was going right? to say, I was, gonna say, I was just thinking Ordinary People. Mary right. Tyler Moore, another Lear, isn't she? Yeah, I mean, it's just, and, and August Osage County. You know, these, these families, they start at the root of what it is that's really bothering everyone, right? Because yeah. every single one of us who's ever experienced anything unhappy in our family knows that there's a root to it. And we've got to start there and just break it apart and let that nut come open, right? Which is how, how, she, how Lear is, is structured. This is, I look, I'm, I'm going to tell everybody, buy this book. Because you know what? Remember, remember Cliff Notes? You get Cliff Notes and more. You get some, a real practical application right. of, of, this, of classic literature, and you get to see structurally where your script is, is perhaps following this when you didn't even intend it. Um, get some inspiration about your characters. Get some inspiration even about your dialogue. Um, and we've got Romeo and Juliet. Climaxes should be inevitable but not predictable. Um, you've got A Midsummer Night's Dream. A good comedy requires at least one accident, coincidence, or ironic twist. Um, for Julius Caesar, how history proves that creativity is overrated. <laughs> and for The Winter's Tale, why character arcs matter. And that's just a taste of this book. So everybody go out and buy uh, Shakespeare for screenwriters, please. Uh, this has yeah. been really, really fun. I'm Thank so glad that you could be this on the show. Will you come to On the Page and, and give a lecture? Sure. Okay. <laughs> I just put people on the spot and make them, because what are they going to say? No, they're on my show, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Where can people find out more about you in general? Um. <clears throat> Well, I'm actually on Twitter, okay. uh, at Jenny Evanson. And, and that's J-E-N-N-I-E-E-V-E-N-S-O-N. Yes. yes, absolutely. And um, that's, I do lots on Twitter. Great. Are you, do you have a website? I do. It's called www.shakespeareforscreenwriters.com. Excellent. Excellent. And, uh, and I think all of your students are really lucky. So <laughs> thank you for being here, Jenny. Thank you. Um, remember to go to David Bax's podcast as well. Tell everybody what it is. Uh, my film discussion podcast is called Battleship Pretension. You can find that at battleshipprotension.com. That's also where you can find my movie reviews and links to my TV podcast, Hey, Watch This with Paul and David. And um, I'm on Twitter at The Pretension. Excellent. And everybody remember, go to onthepage.tv, see what's happening over the summer with classes, uh, even consultations. Everyone's, I never plug my consultations, but I do want to remind people that if you do want to consult, I love consulting privately, but I tend to be booked up months in advance. So if you think that you might want to consult, 
that would be awesome. But email me now and we'll set a deadline for you so I can be there at the end of it. Um, I've had a lot of people going, hi, I'd like to consult next week. And I have to say, I'm so sorry, I can't. <laughs> um, also, please remember that I will be in London um, mid-June. I will be there June 14th and 15th and in Dublin June 17th. Um, so, uh, you know. I think this this episode comes at a good time, you know, because people in the UK they know their Shakespeare, yeah. which is which is awesome. And they're probably rolling their eyes at me through this whole thing, but but not you, Jenny. Um, so thanks very much again to David. Thank you very much to Jenny. Thank you out there for listening, and have a good writing week. 